final messages and then hand off the pulpit ministry to Pastor Dave. And these are messages that are on my heart. I believe the Lord put them there as being especially important for you, the congregation, and for me. Um, And this morning we're going to look at a message on the gospel And it's important for a couple of reasons. One, most of you are engaged in sharing the gospel, and I want to make sure that you have a complete message that you share when you share it. Because, number two, uh, there is an actual movement to undermine what I'm going to say this morning. And um, so that error has permeated much of evangelicalism, and there is confusion about this subject. And so I want you to be clear on what God's Word teaches on it. And number three, if there are any of you here who are confused on it and mistaken about your relationship with the Lord, I pray that this morning His Holy Spirit will open your eyes to the truth that you will understand anew or maybe for the first time uh, this important subject that I'm going to be dealing with. There are printed messages at the exits. You can grab one now or later. There, are, there should be an outline in your bulletin you can track with, and all of the last 26-plus years' messages are on the church website if you want to view any back messages. Normally, I read scripture at the beginning of the message, but this morning, I'm going to take a different approach and not preach from one text, but rather look at what the Bible says in many places about this one topic. And so, uh, we'll be looking at scripture as we work through the message. In the uh, early 1950s, there was a notorious gangster by the name of Mickey Cohen, and he attended a meeting where Billy Graham spoke and expressed some interest in the message, and so several there, including Graham himself and J. Edwin Orr, who's a um, theologian and expert on revival, spoke personally with Cohen about Christ. He made no commitment at that time, but then later another Christian man shared the gospel with Cohen, and he urged him, based on Revelation 3.20, Jesus standing at the door and knocking, and if any man will open the door, he will come in. He urged Cohen to invite Jesus into his heart, and Cohen prayed at that time with that man to receive Christ. Later, Cohen attended a Billy Graham crusade, but his life after this showed no signs of change. He began to distance himself from the man who had prayed with him uh, to receive Christ. He began to hang around with his old cronies again, and when that Christian man tried to help him, Cohen complained, you didn't tell me that I would have to give up my work. Now, his work was being a gangster, you know, murder, threats, uh, stealing, all kinds of Uh, law-breaking. Cohen said, you didn't tell me that I would have to give up my friends. And his friends, of course, were fellow gangsters. Uh, 
other criminals. But Cohen had heard that there were such a thing as Christian movie stars and Christian athletes and Christian businessmen, and he assumed that he could be a Christian gangster. Um, And when he realized that he couldn't, sadly, he turned away from the faith. Now, of course, we kind of chuckle at the idea of being a Christian gangster. And yet there are millions of professing Christians, while not being gangsters, but the fact is they live no differently than anyone else in our corrupt world. Uh, They've never turned from the sin that characterized their life before they prayed to receive Christ. If you went into their homes, you would find anger, abusive speech going on as a regular matter. Uh, They often look at porn. They don't manage their money God's way. And they waste hours and hours every week viewing the corrupt media that floods into our lives while, of course, they have no time then to read God's Word. And when it boils down to it, the only difference between them and our pagan culture is occasionally they attend church on a Sunday morning, but yet they claim to be born-again Christians. And the statistics in our country are shocking. Something like a third claim to be born again, and yet look at our morals as a country. Now, the question I want to answer this morning is, are people who claim to be born again, but whose lives are no different than before they supposedly receive Christ, are they truly converted? And I'll clue you in with my answer up front, and then I'm going to defend it. I think the Bible gives a resounding no to that question. Those who are truly saved by faith in Jesus Christ are always marked by what the Bible calls repentance. Now let me clarify, that does not mean they are sinless. It does mean that they are sinning less than they used to before they came to faith in Jesus Christ. They hate their sin, they fight against it, and when they realize their sin, that they have sinned, they turn immediately to the Lord and turn from that sin. So I want to do a brief study of the topic of repentance in the Bible here this morning. And I believe that that shows that a life of turning to God from sin is evidence that you are genuinely converted. Again, to clarify, salvation is based on faith alone in Christ alone, not on any good works that we do. It is not earned, as several scriptures that we heard during worship make clear. Uh, But this is the deal. If God has saved you, he has changed your heart. And with a changed heart, you can't go on living as you used to live. You view things differently. And so saving faith is repentant faith. If it's not repentant faith, it's not saving faith. It's something else. Now, as I said, there is much false teaching on this. Sorry to say much of it comes out of the seminary that I went to. And there is an organization 
that is promoting the idea that if you believe and say you believe, you're saved whether or not there's any change in your heart or in your life after that. And so many in evangelical churches say, yeah, I prayed the sinner's prayer, or I went forward, or I asked Jesus into my heart, and they think they're saved and going to heaven, but their lives are not marked by initial and ongoing repentance, and I believe they are going to be in for a rude awakening when they stand before the Lord on Judgment Day. So my prayer is that none of us will be deceived, that we will understand that the evidence of genuine conversion is a life marked by initial and ongoing turning to God from sin. So a study of this subject in the Bible shows, first of all, that those who are lost must turn to God from sin to be saved. Now, again, these ones who are promoting this wrong view argue, well, then you're adding works to faith, and you're perverting the gospel of grace alone through faith alone. Now, there are many verses, as I'm going to show you, that connect faith and salvation, and so the way they dodge that is they redefine repentance and say, well, repentance is just a change of mind about Jesus. You used to think Jesus was something else, and now you think this about Jesus, but it's not a change of heart or a change of life or of behavior. But I believe the scripture is clear that repentance means turning to God from sin. In the Old Testament, the main word that is used, uh, translated repentance, means to turn or return. It's used over a thousand times in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's just referring to physically turning around. Somebody was going somewhere and they turned around. But um, very often it is meaning turning to the Lord. Uh, there's an Old Testament uh, scholarly work called the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament. And in that work, Victor Hamilton, writing on repentance, says that this word combines in itself the two requisites of repentance to turn from evil and to turn to the good. And then he concludes that this conscious decision of turning to God includes repudiation of all sin and affirmation of God's total will for one's life. <clears throat> when you get to the New Testament, there are three words used for repentance, and they occur in either noun or verb form over 60 times, beginning with a summary of both John the Baptist and Jesus' preaching. This is Matthew 3, 2, John the Baptist, and then Jesus in Matthew 4, 17, and the verses are identical. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, there is a New, New Testament book that is a classic called Synonyms of the New Testament by a man named R.C. Trench. And he says that repentance is that mighty change in mind, heart, and life wrought by the Spirit of God. Now, those who say it's just a change of mind are basing it on the Greek word itself um, is a compound word, and the two separate words mean a change of mind, but you err if you just make it that alone. 
the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology, the author says um, that a change of mind plays very little part in the New Testament. Rather, the decision by the whole man to turn around is stressed. He says it's clear that we are concerned neither with a purely outward turning nor with a merely intellectual change of ideas. Uh, Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, has this definition of repentance. He says it's a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. And so repentance involves then a change of thinking, yes, but also a change of feeling and a change of behaving. And like saving faith, the Bible is clear that repentance is a gift that God grants by his grace. Uh, it is not as something we do in our own works, but like believing, sinners are responsible to believe in Christ, but they are incapable of believing in Christ unless he grants that faith as a gift. Same thing with repentance. But if anyone uh, does, not have, uh, say, uh, does not have repentance, he does not have genuine saving faith. Now, sorrow for sin is a normal part of repentance, but you can be sorry for your sin and not truly repent. Judas felt remorse after he betrayed Jesus, so much so that he was suicidal and killed himself, but he was not converted. The Bible says that Esau found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthians that Sorrow, according to the will of God, can lead to repentance and be valuable, but sorrow is not enough. Repentance involves the turning again of the whole person from sin to God. And so the repentant person accepts responsibility for his sin, he calls out in faith to God for salvation, and he proves his repentance by, and his faith by subsequent changed life. Now, let me show you some scriptures that sustain what I'm saying. Um, Paul's experience with the Thessalonians. In chapter 1, verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia, where they lived, and in Achaia, which is south in Greece, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. So clearly, they had believed the gospel. But clearly, their faith was inseparable from repentance because the very next verse, verse 9, reads, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. Here it is. How you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And so Paul didn't go into Thessalonica and preach, well, just believe in Jesus now. Later on, maybe you should consider making him Lord of your life and repenting of your sin and all of that. He included turning from sin to God in his message of faith in Christ alone. And so their whole way of life had changed. If I had more time, I would take you to Jonah chapter 3 where you see the Ninevites uh, at Jonah's reluctant preaching 
they all turned from their sin and repented. They believed in God. Uh, The Apostle Paul, late in Acts, he gets an account to preach to King Agrippa. And he tells King Agrippa that on the Damascus Road, Jesus told Paul that he was sending him to the Gentiles. And here's Acts 26, 18. Here's why Jesus sent Paul to the Gentiles. To open their eyes so that they may turn, there's the word, turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, that's salvation, and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So that's the message that Paul was to proclaim. He didn't make it up himself. It wasn't just change your mind about Jesus and believe and then go on living as you're living. Don't worry about your sins. But rather, Paul's gospel, which he got straight from Jesus on the Damascus Road, included repentance, which meant a change of behavior. And so lost people have to turn from their sin to God to be saved. That's what saving faith is all about. And that means that our gospel message is incomplete if we do not talk about turning to God from sin. John the Baptist preached a message of repentance to lost people. And he made it clear that he wasn't talking about just a change of mind only. This thing keeps slipping here today. Um, He wasn't talking about a change of mind only, but rather he was talking about a change of behavior. Uh, Luke chapter 3 verse 3 summarizes John's message as a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And if you read the context there, and again, I don't have time to go to there, but John told his followers, his uh, hearers, that they needed to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he even specified for different groups, soldiers and others, here's what you need to do to show your repentance. Jesus also preached repentance to lost people. I've thought a lot this week about Luke chapter 13. In Luke 13, uh, some people asked Jesus about a a tragedy that had happened, a couple of tragedies. And uh, people had died. One was a tower that fell on a bunch of people. The other was um, that uh, Pilate had slaughtered a bunch of Jewish people. And... um, I've thought about it in light of the situation in California. Like, are these people greater sinners than us that this should happen to them? And the answer is no. And here's Jesus' answer when they asked him about that. He said, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus used this common tragedy to say, Uh, No, these people were no worse than you are, and you need to repent, or you will perish as well. And when Jesus sent out his disciples to preach, the message that he gave them in Mark 6.12 was that men should repent. And so they didn't make that up. They got it straight from the Lord. John MacArthur sums up a chapter in repentance in his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, He says, repentance has always been the foundation 
of the biblical call to salvation. No evangelism that omits the message of repentance can properly be called the gospel, for sinners cannot come to Jesus Christ apart from a radical change of heart, mind, and will. That demands a spiritual crisis leading to a complete turnaround and ultimately a wholesale transformation. It is the only kind of conversion Scripture recognizes. Now, you may be wondering, well, what is the relationship then between repentance and saving faith? And I believe they are inextricably bound together. They're like two sides of the same coin. Uh, They have different nuances or emphases. Genuine saving faith means trusting in Christ alone and in his shed blood on the cross to cover the penalty of our sin and to deliver us from God's wrath. But you cannot in your heart truly lay hold of Christ for salvation and say, but Lord, I want to hang on to my sin too. It's just non sequitur. It doesn't follow. You cannot do both at the same time. So to genuinely turn to Christ, you have to say no to my sinful life. There are some who may verbally profess yes to Christ, but they're holding on to their sin. But the Bible is clear that that kind of empty profession without repentance is not true saving faith. Let me use an analogy I've used with you many times. You're driving to Phoenix, and you repent. You should, if you're driving to Phoenix. Okay, and you say, I believe in my heart I should no longer be driving to Phoenix. And you keep driving. Did you really believe that? No. If you really believe it, you look for the next off-ramp, you get off, you hang a U-turn, and you drive back to Flagstaff. That's what believing means. It means turning around. You're going the wrong way. Repentance says, wait a minute. Put the brakes on, hang a U, go the other way. That's repentance, biblically. Uh, Your faith, if it's genuine, will be seen in your behavior, turning your car around. Uh, J. Edwin Orr, whom I mentioned earlier, wrote, The difference between true faith and what the scripture calls false faith is simple. False faith, he's referring to, is the lack of repentance. Now you see this in the Bible, in the story of a man named Simon the Sorcerer. In, Luke, in Acts chapter 8, which Luke wrote. Uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 13 says, Simon believed and he was even baptized. And he began to continue on with Philip, who was preaching the gospel. Then Peter and John came down from Jerusalem to Samaria. And uh, as they did, people began receiving the Holy Spirit through the apostles and through their prayers. And so Simon saw that, and he offered to pay Peter and John that he could get the same gift. He was into power. He liked this thing. And here's Peter's response, Acts chapter 8, verses 20 to 23. Notice how gentle and subtle Peter was. May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. There's the issue. It wasn't a heart conversion. 
Therefore, repent, turn from this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see, here's his condition, you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. And so even though Luke says earlier there that Simon had believed and was baptized, he was not saved because his faith did not include repentance. And I'm saying that we are not faithfully presenting the gospel to people if we ignore their sin and say, oh, yeah, yeah, that doesn't matter. Just believe. Just believe. Here, pray this prayer. Invite Jesus into your heart. You're good, man. And then we share assurance with him. And there's no change of heart, no change of life. Becky Pippard, in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World, tells a story. She was a campus worker at the time and uh, at Stanford. And she invited a young woman named Lois, who was skeptical about the existence of God, to a Bible study. And Lois agreed to come, but said, the Bible won't have anything relevant to say to me. The next day, Becky discovered that Lois was living off campus with her boyfriend, Phil, And to Becky's great surprise, Phil showed up with Lois at the Bible study. Uh, Before she knew Lois' background, Becky had already decided that in that Bible study, they would go over John chapter 4, which was the story of Jesus' encounter with the immoral woman at the well in Samaria. I hope you're familiar with that story. So she started the study, and she suddenly realized Uh, oops, we're dealing with a woman here who is living with a man who is not her husband. And I've got a couple like that sitting right here. And so she tried to work it out. They were going around reading part of the story, each one, that Lois would not have to read the portion uh, that she ended up reading. And here's what Lois ended up reading. Uh, Jesus said to the woman, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For the man you're living with now is not your husband. And uh, this is the first time ever Lois had read the Bible. This is the verse she got. And she said, "Uh, I must say, this is a little more relevant than I expected. And so Becky met with Lois and talked to her about Christ. And after she'd presented the gospel, she asked, Is there any reason why you couldn't become a Christian? And Becky said, uh, Lois said, no. And then Becky replied wisely, I can think of one. What are you going to do about Phil? And she confronted her with her sin. She talked to her then about how a relationship with God is not just an intellectual thing. It affects your entire life, including your morals. And as they talked, it became clear God was pursuing Lois and had been for some time and she struggled she cried but before they left she prayed a sincere prayer to trust Christ as her Savior and Lord and then immediately after the prayer she said Becky I got problems she said I'm going to have to tell Phil and move out and there's nowhere to go and uh, at this time it's impossible to get a dorm room this late into the school beginning of the school year, and I'm going to have to pay this month's rent in two places. And so they prayed again, and as Lois left, Becky agonized over the difficult 
things facing this young believer, how she could handle it. Later, Becky was chatting with some other students in the hallway of a dorm, and she heard a commotion, and she turned, and she saw Lois coming down the hall with suitcases, and she had tears streaming down her cheeks, and she was smiling. And everyone asked her why she had left home. And she said, no, I haven't left home. I finally found my home because today I became a Christian. That decision had far-reaching effects. The same night, three other girls decided they needed to get right with Christ. One other girl decided, if that's what it means, I'm out of here. And she turned away. The next day, Lois was told she could move into the dorm, which was unheard of at that date. And she discovered her new roommate was a mature Christian. And then three months later, Phil, her ex-boyfriend, came to faith in Christ. And he had been very angry over her conversion and her moving out, of course. But then after he was converted, he said, Thanks, Lois, for loving God enough to put him first instead of me, your obedience affected my eternal destiny. You get to the end of Luke's gospel and Jesus gives a great commission to his disciples. And in Luke 24, 47, Jesus said that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. And so, Repentance isn't an afterthought to the gospel. Repentance is part and parcel of the gospel. And God forgives repentant sinners because they are truly believing in Christ. Now, repentance, though, isn't something you do at the initial point of salvation and then you go, phew, I'm glad that's over with. Let's move on. Repentance is a lifelong thing. And that's the second point I want to make this morning, that those who are truly saved will be marked by heartfelt repentance as an ongoing way of life. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter describes apostates as those who turn away from God's holy commandment and return to sin, he says, as a dog returns to its own vomit. True Christians, however, grow increasingly sensitive to sin, and they continue to turn from it. And it has to begin on the heart or the thought level, as the Word of God convicts you. As you get into the Word of God, which you probably were somewhat ignorant of as a non-Christian, and you read it, you begin to go, "Uh uh-oh, whoa, there's an area of my life that's not right with God. And you turn from it and turn to Christ. And that goes on. And it goes on. And you confess it, you turn from it, and that's how you grow as a believer in Jesus Christ. And as I said, we'll never be sinless in this life, but we will sin less as we are more and more conformed to the image of Christ through the Word of God. And so a life of turning to God from sin is the evidence you're truly saved. 1 John 2, 3 puts it this way. 
By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And we grow in that, of course. I heard about a girl who trusted Christ. She applied for membership in a church, and a deacon said to her, "Uh, Were you a sinner before you received the Lord Jesus into your life? And she said, Yes, sir. And he said, Well, uh, are you still a sinner? And she said, Well, to tell you the truth, sir, uh, I am a greater sinner now than ever. And he said, Well, then, what real change have you experienced? And she said, I don't know quite how to explain it, but I used to be a sinner who was running after sin, but since I'm at Christ, I'm a sinner running from my sin. And that was the right thing to uh, understand. And they accepted her into the fellowship of that church, and her, after, her life after that <clears throat> proved her genuine conversion. One final thing I want to mention about repentance is this. When sinners repent, God welcomes them with great joy. This is really crucial. Because we think sometimes repentance, that's kind of negative. No, it ought to be the greatest joy in the world when you repent and God welcomes you into his presence with open arms. And when we repent, God is gracious to us, not because of our works, but because of the work of his son Jesus on the cross for us and because of the work of his Holy Spirit in our hearts. One of my favorite texts in the Old Testament, I've never preached on this, I should sometime if I ever get the opportunity, Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 and 7, and it says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Notice it's on the thought level, the heart level. And let him return to the Lord and he'll zap him. Is that what it says? No. This is so beautiful. Let him return to the Lord. And here's what will happen. He will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Oh, I love that word. Abundantly pardon. You, you can't, as we sang earlier, you cannot out the mercy of God. And so whatever your pile of sin, turn to the Lord while you can, and you will receive compassion and abundant pardon. It's nowhere illustrated, I think, more beautifully in the Bible than in Luke chapter 15, where Jesus tells three stories, three parables. There's the lost sheep, or first, yeah, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the lost son. And in the first two, the emphasis is great joy when the lost sheep is found, when the lost coin is found. And then the story of the lost son, which you know is the parable of the prodigal son, Uh, repentance is seen there because he's there feeding the pigs. He has fallen from his father. He has squandered his inheritance. And he comes to repentance. And here's what he says in Luke 15, 18, and 19. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son 
Make me as one of your hired men. Now the important part of the story is he didn't just sit in the pigsty thinking that and go on sitting in the pigsty. He got up and he did it. He went back to his father. And the most beautiful part of the story is the response of the father. You have to understand, in Hebrew culture, it was disgraceful for an old geezer like me to pull up his robes and expose his legs and run. That just was undignified. The father sees the son at a distance, and that means he was looking for him. And he girds up his loins, he runs to his son, and he doesn't say, you no good, lousy son of mine. You know, get out of here. Instead, he embraces his son and he kisses him and he brings out the, the special robe and, and tells his servants to kill the fatted calf and they rejoice and they make merry because this son who is dead is living again. He's come back to the father. And that is such a beautiful picture of what God does when any sinner repents of his sin, and comes to Jesus for forgiveness. God welcomes you with open arms and receives you into his family as a beloved son. Uh, Years ago, I was in Romania ministering, and um, Romania is a country where many nominally believe to the Orthodox Church, much as many in Mexico believed belonged to the Catholic Church. But when a person gets saved in Romania, the Orthodox scornfully call him a repenter. Oh, he's a repenter. And they mean it as a put-down. I think that would be a great label to have on us as evangelical Christians. Yeah, he's a repenter. He's a repenter. So I want to ask you this morning, does your faith in Jesus Christ include initial and lifelong repentance? That's the only true faith. I want to conclude by reading the scariest verses in the Bible. I didn't give them. Jesus did. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? These guys were involved in ministry. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. As I said, those are the most frightening words in the Bible. Don't shrug them off. Think about them. Because the evidence that you're truly saved is a life of turning to God from your sin. And anything else is counterfeit faith. Let's pray. The invitation is for you right now. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. 
and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Dear Lord, I pray that you would work in hearts and lives to draw each one to genuine repentance and faith in Jesus. And for your children, Lord, that we would be marked by ongoing repentance, that we would all be repenters of our sins. We thank you for the abundant pardon that we have through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And pray that we would never take that for granted, but would revel in it daily that your cross would be more precious to us the longer we are your children. In Jesus' name, amen.